Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that was shed willingly, freely, for us, on our behalf, so that we might have an opportunity to be able to stand before you righteous, not through our own works, but through the perfect life of our Savior. So Lord, we thank you for helping us to think on that this morning. We thank you that we can come just as we are. But Lord, we don't want to, as a result of being here this morning, stay as we are. We want to leave changed, changed by your spirit, transformed by your word. So help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is great to get things going again from a summer of rest and relaxation, I hope, for many of you. Time to, if you're involved in ministry or even in work, just the time, I hope you were all able to have a little bit of time to, to sort of kick back and, and relax a little bit from the regular routines, the rhythm of life. But we've had a good week of ministry here already. Our 55 plus had a meeting on Tuesday, luncheon, and Wednesday our ladies' timeout met. Our youth had a wonderful outing, from what I understand, yesterday afternoon. And, and we've had a good Lord's Day morning as well as we officially kick off our, our year. And as the body of Christ here at Wetaskiwin Mission Church, I would hope that we'd all agree that it's good to be together like this once again. Well, it just so happens... Actually, nothing really ever just so happens, right? But we are in a portion of Hebrews that talks about exactly that, the benefits of being able to meet together as believers in Jesus Christ. And so I want you to uh, turn your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. And I'd like to just read that for us this morning. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Since we have confidence... That's a great way to, to start a speech. We all want to get to the place where we've got an air of confidence about us, about whatever endeavor or whatever adventure is before us. We want to go into that confidently. But what is it that inspires confidence? How do we get to the place where we have confidence? It's interesting that the idea of, of self-confidence is, is kind of a a buzzword these days in, in leadership circles and really in any area that deals with people. It's something that's much um, ballyhooed when it comes to training people how to think about themselves in motivational speaking circles or positive thinking, self-help. 
What inspires confidence? I read a list this week in an article called 50 Inspiring Motivational Quotes to Increase Your Confidence. This is something that if you want to grow in confidence, something that you want to pay attention to. And these are all from famous, maybe we would call them inspirational people. And as I read them, just listen for the, or as I read them now, just listen for the one person that they say can inspire the most confidence, the person that you need to look to in order to get confidence. Golda Meir, former president of Israel, says, trust yourself. Create the kind of self that you will be happy to live with all your life. Make most of yourself by fanning the tiny inner sparks of possibilities into flames of achievement. Playwright Oscar Wilde says, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. that sound good? Buddha, he says, you yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. And inspirational author Alan Cohen says, wouldn't it be powerful if you fell in love with yourself so deeply that you would do just about anything if you knew it would make you happy? This is precisely how much life loves you and wants you to nurture yourself. The deeper you love yourself, the more the universe will affirm your worth. Then you can enjoy a lifelong love affair that brings you the richest fulfillment from the inside out." End quote. Now, those quotes, I would hope, would surely increase your confidence in yourself. Where can you find the inspiration to build up your confidence? Why, you don't have to go too far. According to these experts, you can find it in yourself. You just need to dig down within yourself to be able to find out who you really are and then fall in love with yourself. According to these experts, you can find confidence in your own being. You need to love yourself and, and start a lifelong romance. Now, if you think about it, if that was the case, why would so many people be struggling with confidence if it's right there? But it just goes to show that the self-styled experts and their so-called wisdom are at total odds with the Bible. In fact, this sort of advice is antithetical to the Bible. The Bible says if there's any confidence to be had, it has to come from outside of, our, of ourselves. If we search inside of us, we'll only find, as Jeremiah says, a heart that is desperately wicked. It starts at the early stages, this search for finding confidence in God. Psalms 87, or 78 verse 7 says that a parent's goal is to teach their children to put their confidence not in themselves, but in God. When it comes to getting saved, we can't manufacture that within ourselves. We have to go outside ourselves and put our confidence in what Jesus has done. And that then makes us ask, what is it about Jesus that should inspire our confidence? And now we're starting to make some progress. It brings us to the letter of Hebrews. The, the whole of the letter has been telling us that Jesus is better, that Jesus is supreme, and we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. And so it is Jesus, ultimately, that inspires our confidence. It's who he is, it's what he's done. And here in Hebrews 10, in the section that I just read, we've, we've sort of hit a turning point in this letter. This is one of those important sections. Another one is in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, that you sort of want to mark as, as encapsulating what Hebrews is all about. We're now going to find out what this 
truth about Jesus means for us and what it is that we should be doing now that we know this. This sort of goes from doctrine to application. And the first few verses, verses 19 to 21, are really just a reminder of who Jesus is and what he does to inspire our confidence. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, this is saying, if you just stop right there, it's saying that we can go into the presence of God now. How? Is it because we've somehow made it into God's good graces through our own effort, through our own good works? Have we somehow discovered our own inner goodness? No. It says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, we can only go into God's presence to stand before him, to, to pray to him, because Jesus has already opened the way. And Jesus opened the way by what we just sang about, by his shed blood on the cross. It is Jesus that inspires our confidence to go into God's presence. Just think of that. Go into God's presence. What would it take for you to go into the presence of your boss, if you had a boss? You might have a good relationship with him or her. You might have a, even a casual relationship where it's pretty easy to approach them. But he or she is still your boss. You would likely have to at least knock before you go into their presence. Or, or you would say, can I disturb you for a minute? Something like that. Now think about going into the presence of the prime minister. Now the stakes get a little bit higher. You, you can't just walk into the office. You know, there'd be a whole host of steps that you would need to go through, security checks, permissions, etc. And even then, it's not likely that you'd get into his office. He would probably come and see you in a public place. And it would never be a private visit. Other people would be there in the room. And you would be on your best behavior. No matter what you think of him, his presence, his position demands respect and it demands a certain kind of decorum. But now, think a little further to the creator of the universe. What would it take to go into his presence? Well, number one, think about your emotional state. You would be scared. If God created life, he could take away your life with one word. And so, you wouldn't just need to be at your best behavior. You would need to be perfect. And you aren't. So there would be a sense of awe and, and fear. But this is saying that you can enter the holy places now confidently, boldly. But only when you enter through Jesus. He opens the way because he was perfect. He opens the way because he came as a human like you and can therefore represent you to God. He opens the way because he died instead of you for your sins. So it's through Jesus' perfection, through his righteousness, that you can stand before God. The curtain there in verse 20 reminds us of the Jewish temple, which these readers would have known very well, coming from a Hebrew background. It, it symbolized a separation between God and his people. But when Jesus died, one of the things that happened there around those days of the crucifixion is that all of a sudden the temple curtain was ripped in two. As Jesus' flesh was torn, as he was hanging there on the cross, the curtain was torn as well, and the way was open to get 
access to God. That's the first reason Jesus inspires our confidence here. Jesus opens the way for us to get to God. The the other reason we see there down in verse 21. And and this is all kind of a quick recap of the entire first ten chapters of, of Hebrews. But that second one is that Jesus, in Jesus, we have a great high priest over the house of God. A commentator by the name of Homer Kent writes, Not only do we have the benefits of a matchless sacrifice, but we also have the benefits of an incomparable priest. In the work of Jesus as our priest, he's the one who takes us into God's presence. He actually intercedes to God on our behalf. He is a great high priest over the house of God. And so we see here that our confidence comes only by God's grace through his one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus alone, his person, his accomplishments, inspires our confidence to be able to come before God. But to what end? What does this mean for us? What can we now do? What should we now do because of this great and awesome truth that we can come before God? And that brings us to the heart of this passage. Because those first two things had a since before them. Since all that is true, then you have three things here. And you see those three things that start with the words, let us. Let us. I said to someone the other day that I should have given this message a a, a corny title of three heads of lettuce. But I resisted. And then I told you anyways. But Hebrews was originally written as a sermon before it was circulated a letter. So this preacher has a three-point message here in terms of exhortations. Let us draw near in verse 22, let us hold fast in verse 23, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works in verse 24. Now those first two, if you've been here for our series in Hebrews, sound very familiar. uh, And they really resemble almost to a word, at least to a thought, a passage back in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 that I turned to, or I talked about just a few minutes ago. Maybe just turn there for, for a minute. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. You'll see how familiar these sound. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So a very similar sounding passage, and really, these passages almost bookend the whole central section, the part that's between there, about how Jesus is the better high priest. But because he is that, we can hold fast, we can draw near. And the last encouragement there, let us consider, really covers some new ground. And so we're going to spend a little bit more time on that one. But verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. This is really just saying that since we now have access to God, then let's go. What are we waiting for? We now have the opportunity for fellowship with God himself. Think again about how much of a privilege that is. We can fellowship with the God of the universe, with our creator. Let's take that opportunity, this is saying. Let's not hold back. Go go in the fear of the Lord with awe and reverence, but don't be scared. Have fear, but don't be scared, right? You can enter into the 
holy places confidently and boldly. And based on what Jesus did for you, you can go in with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, your body washed with pure water. That, that last part tells us that in order for us to enjoy fellowship with God, we have to be pure, we have to be clean. But it also tells us that Jesus already took care of that requirement on the cross. Jesus, his blood is, is what cleanses us. That's what we sang in that song again. Our, our hearts and our bodies are now clean forever. If you are a Christian, when you turned away from your sins and you turned to Christ alone, the blood of Jesus made you pure. And so the upshot of that is that you can draw near to God confidently, frequently, without any hesitation. Your conscience doesn't have to torment you anymore because your sin has been dealt with. Not only your past sin, but your present sin and your future sin. It's all been dealt with finally and definitively and decisively. Now, you still need to confess your sins, but that doesn't affect your access to God. You can draw near to him with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Just think about that word assurance What's the one area that lots of Christians struggle with? It's this, this, this concept of assurance. Am I really saved? Could I really be saved? It's not a wrong question to ask sometimes. We need to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. But we can't, we can't stay there in a place of perpetual doubt. Thinking like that should really just drive you back to Christ where you'll see that his shed blood has purified and cleansed you once and for all. Well, the other thing that some Christians struggle with is hope. Especially when, when life goes sideways. When things don't turn out like we thought they would. When our life doesn't go quite the way we had planned. The way we had drawn it out. When life throws a sudden curveball your way that you weren't ready for. What now? Well, when that happens, our faith has a tendency to waver, has a tendency to teeter a little bit. There might be a tendency to loosen our grip on Jesus. Why is God allowing this to happen? And the one thing that we lose is hope. We wonder how we're going to make it through this. Can I survive Will God get me through this one? How could he possibly? What would need to happen? It doesn't seem like there's any hope. Now, some of you have experienced that and made it out the other side. You've had periods of time when it's just been a, a tough go. You've had to deal with someone's unexpected death. You, you may have had a health issue. You, you may have had long periods of job stress, years of relationship breakdown. And some of you are right in the middle of it right now. Well, verse 23 has an answer for you. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. When things go sideways, we need to hold on to those things that we, need, uh, that we know to be true. This confession of our faith, talking about who Jesus is. What do we believe about God? What, what do we know for sure about God? Well, one of the things, the things that you know is that he promises a secure future. If you are a believer, you have the sure hope of heaven. It is an anchor for your soul. 
He will get you there. And, and number two, look at the end of verse 23. Love this, these words. He who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Those are such great words when you don't know what's going to happen next. When you don't know where to turn. God is faithful. Those beautiful words are scattered throughout the Bible at, at very strategic places. I think just as a reminder for us that God's promises are always yes and amen. God's promises are true. You can count on him every single time without fail to keep you, to carry you through. He is faithful. He is a sure hope. Our job then is to hold fast, to to cling to Christ, to let him take you through as you're hanging on. Admittedly, that's not easy. It's a fight. It takes stamina. When, you, when you're holding on to something and you're gripping on to something, you know that after a while it's hard to keep your grip on it, right? You want to let go. But it's at that point that we have to latch on, uh, latch our thoughts onto God and onto his promises. He is faithful. Even when we are faithless, this one passage in Scripture says God is faithful. And the other thing that can help you in this is is sort of hidden in the tenses of these exhortations. Drawing near and holding fast are something that we do better together. Let us draw near with our hearts sprinkled clean. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. You are not on your own. We need to work together on this as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we help each other hold on to Christ. We uphold each other when we don't know who to turn, when our, when our grip is loosening. Others will hold you up and we'll make sure you keep your grip on Jesus Christ. We do this as brothers and sisters in Christ, as fellow members in God's covenant community. We're, we're linked together as we draw near to God. We hold fast together. And that really leads right into the last piece of lettuce. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. So those first two were covered earlier in the letter, but this now is new territory, and I want to spend some time on this one, especially since this is our fall kickoff. But the writer is saying here, since all these wonderful things about Jesus are good and true and praiseworthy, our job now together is to stir one another up to love and good deeds. This sort of, this, this sentence actually could be a good moniker for our church. This should mark our church. We should be known for our love for each other and for doing kind things for each other. Loving just as Christ loved us. Sacrificing for each other because Christ sacrificed for us. You see here that, that love is not just an emotion and, and not just a feeling again. It's not just having good feelings for each other. Love is actually doing things for each other. Love shows itself practically. And we're supposed to spur each other on to be those kinds of people. Spur, agitate, provoke in a good way. In order to stir one another up, this says that we need to negatively not neglect to meet together and positively to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's just what life is supposed to be like in the Christian community. Back in verse 21, it said that we have a great high priest over the house of God. 
that's what we are brought into. We are brought into not just the presence of God, it's not just me and God, but the house of God. It's a house. There are, there are other people there. When we are saved, we are placed into God's family, the household of God. And so fellowship with God is never a selfish pursuit. Fellowship with God means we have fellowship with other people. We walk through the Christian life together. And we, we do that only when we meet together. Makes sense, doesn't it? Apparently some of the people here in Hebrews thought that they could have fellowship, though, without being together. Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. There were some people that didn't think it was important to attend church. And so this writer, this pastor says, do not neglect to meet together, but encourage one another. Straightforward, very practical instruction for all of us who call ourselves Christians is to meet together when the church gets together. In other words, be at church on Sundays. Attend church. He's saying if you're not meeting together, you're likely not encouraging each other. And if you're not meeting together, you're likely not stirring each other up to love and good deeds. So attend church. That's the best way to foster Christian fellowship in in which there is mutual encouragement and mutual provocation towards love and good works. And so if the cure for those who struggle with doubt or lack of assurance is to draw near to God, and if the cure for those who struggle with hope is to hold fast to Jesus, then the cure for those who struggle with maybe loneliness or little Christian fellowship is to meet together on the Lord's Day. Be committed to attend church. Don't be um, in the category of as is the habit of some. You don't want to fall into that category, into that group. Now, this just seems like a very obvious thing. (laughs) But it's really not so obvious in our day and age, is it? I've used this statistic before, but those who study these kinds of things say that people now consider themselves to be regular attenders of the church when they are at church two Sunday mornings out of every month. Now, when I grew up, I had to be at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday nights every week. But now people say they're regular church attenders if they're there two Sundays a month, two Sunday mornings out of every month. And so I'm going to come right out and make an appeal to us today. You might be thinking, you know, I've been away most of the summer. Now I'm back. And instead of, hey, welcome back, it's good to see you again, the pastor's going to start prodding at my conscience. And you're kind of right. Only it's God saying this, not me. And, and to be honest, I know that if I weren't a pastor, I would be struggling with this as well. So think about your own life and habits. What would it take to raise your commitment to attend church in this coming year? This is a good time to take inventory of your life and to think about these sorts of things. Here are a couple suggestions to help you do that. The first is to think priorities. Do a priority inventory. Here's a question that might help you with this. Just think about the last three times that you missed Sunday morning worship service. You know, any Lord's Day service, not just ours, if you were on vacation, if you um, attended a church that Sunday, don't count that. But the last three Sundays you missed, on those three Sundays, what took its place? Last three Sundays that you weren't at church, what took its place? 
And was that legitimate? I mean really legitimate. And here's how you can measure legitimacy. If you were to have to explain this, not to me, or not just even think about it to yourself, but would have to explain it to God, would God be satisfied with your explanation? Jesus, remember, purchased the church with his own blood. Would he be satisfied with your explanation? Would God be satisfied with Jesus? The church is blood-bought, remember. Would he be satisfied with your explanation? Now, just to be balanced, I'm sure there are some instances in which he could be satisfied. But I'm just asking you to think of those things. What are some things that might be taking the place of church attendance? And if you have something else up on the weekend, can you still do that and include church on your Sunday morning? If you're within range, is church important enough to come back for? Anyways, just a few priority-type questions to measure your commitment to meet together. Another small suggestion for raising your commitment is to do a cost-benefit analysis. We do these all the time, don't we? What are the costs to making that kind of commitment? And then, what are the benefits? What is it going to cost, and what are the blessings? So I would just encourage you today, on this, this day, to make that commitment. Make every effort to be here. Don't neglect to meet together. Take this command seriously. Don't just write this off as a kind of, as, a, as something I, I'll do if I get to it, or if I don't do it, it's okay. If I do it, it's good. This is a command from God. And more than that, you need it. And even more than that, we all need it. We all need for you to be here. And you can see the urgency there, right? Encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now I need to say here that church attendance does not earn salvation. And it's not a way to measure if one person is a better Christian than another person. And we know that there are extenuating circumstances for not being able to attend church Sickness would be one of them. But attendance does reflect a growing commitment to the gospel. And it reflects a commitment to encourage one another in the church. If you think about it, the Christian life, being a follower of Christ, is really about carving out parts of our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus asks you to carve out parts of your life in order to follow him. He asks you to, to carve out regular and proportionate um, giving, to give part of your income for him. He wants you to carve that out. He asks you to carve out time for him as you, as you meditate on his word day and night, as you pray, as you serve. And he asks you to carve out time to meet together with the saints. Are you willing to follow Jesus? Are you willing to count the cost? Are you willing to deny yourself? So on this almost fall kickoff, let us consider, let us reflect, let us ponder carefully, let us contemplate how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together.